Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. If you're new to the Bible, we're very happy to have you here with us. This is a great place to learn how to read and understand the scriptures. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version we use, there are copies available in the lobby. You feel free to grab one if you need it. Keep it as our gift to you. You can go back right now and grab one. Uh, You can also, if you like, just type in Acts 8 ESV on your mobile device and follow along that way. You will want to have this passage in front of you. We've got 40 verses to cover this morning. Last week, we learned about the church's first martyr, Stephen, and his death was the spark which lit the fire of a broader persecution in the Jerusalem church. We're about to find that out. But as is always the case in Acts, persecution is no setback for God and his gospel mission. Efforts to stop the gospel, squash the gospel, only serve to expand its influence. That's the consistent testimony of the book of Acts, all by God's design for as John Stott so eloquently put it, Jesus' death, speaking of Jesus' death, he says, Jesus' death reminds us that that suffering is the key to church growth. Suffering is the key to church growth since it is the seed that dies which multiplies, echoing the very words of Jesus himself. The seed of Stephen's life has died, but it now multiplies. Persecution erupts in the Jerusalem church, but but this persecution turns out to be the way in which Jesus fulfills his promise to send the gospel out from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. So read with me now how Jesus' promise of gospel growth comes to fruition. Acts chapter 8 all 40 verses, and then I'll pray. Verse 1. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who'd previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. 
Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but that they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Verse 25, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship And was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns till he came to Caesarea. The very words of God. Would you join me in a brief prayer for understanding? Lord, open our hearts, open our minds to receive your word. It is true bread. It is drink 
for parched souls. And understanding it, treasuring it, applying it to our lives is no mere human endeavor. We need the power of your spirit to understand and apply these words to our hearts today. And so we ask that he would come and do just that, that we, we might know your son better, that we might trust him. Do this, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. While Acts chapter 8 focuses on the exploits of one particularly gifted evangelist, Philip, the gospel ministry of the entire church is in view here. Look again with me at verse 1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and this phrase, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, seeing that couplet should catch our attention, except the apostles. Now look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who were scattered refers to ordinary Christians. The 12 apostles remain in Jerusalem to lead the church there. The scattered in this passage mentioned twice are ordinary Christians, but who's doing the scattering, okay? Who's doing the scattering and why the word scattering? Is it Saul the persecutor? Is he the one scattering the church and those who've joined him? In a sense, sure, yes, but not really. The word scattering is meant to bring our attention to God, for God is the scatterer of his people. The picture that Luke begins painting for us here is of a great farmer taking handfuls of gospel seeds out of his bag and casting them into new places. The persecution of the church is simply the way he's doing it. But what do these Christians do while they're scattered? What's their instinct? Verse 4, they preach the word, shorthand for the gospel. Every last one of them. This passage is about the evangelistic ministry of the entire church. Now, notice a couple things from the outset. First, the spread of the gospel here isn't owing to some incredible strategy laid out by the apostles in Jerusalem, okay? Persecution makes scattering necessary for the believers, but more importantly, the persecution reveals God's providence. The subtext here is that God is moving his mission forward, right? These Christians had no complex mission strategy. They simply seized the opportunities that the Lord provided for them. And they saw even persecution as an opportunity provided for them by the Lord. Same for us. We don't need a complex personal evangelism strategy. We just need to seize the opportunities to share the gospel that God already provides for us. The second thing I want you to notice is that the gospel is being shared by ordinary Christians, okay? Luke says those who were scattered went about preaching the word, all of them, men, women, pastors, deacons, anyone, any Christian, all of them were involved in this ministry. Now, don't get stuck on the word preaching, okay? Doesn't mean they were all doing street corner, you know, soapbox evangelism or that they had, you know, Turner burn signs or something like that. No, not, not at all. The, the word that Luke uses for preaching the gospel is broad enough even to refer to a Christian sitting down beside a well in a town square with one other person explaining the gospel to them. Or in our day and age, having, your believing, having an unbelieving friend over for a cup of coffee, sitting in your living room talking about Jesus. That's preaching the gospel here in Acts 8. 
every Christian, right? Every Christian is a preacher of the gospel. If you've been around our church for any amount of time, you know that gospel ministry is our first priority, okay? Gospel ministry is our first priority. There's all kinds of things we could give ourselves to as a community of faith, but gospel ministry is our first priority. Now, I know you know that. Teaching you anything new here. But you know what I think most of us feel when we think about our own personal responsibility to evangelize? Guilt. I'm not doing enough. That's one of the reasons, again, if you've been around, we're doing the Who's Your One campaign in our small groups this year. It's simply a commitment to pray for and share the gospel with at least one person each month. The whole purpose is to spur us on to keep sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and push back against that guilt we feel for not doing enough. But there's something I don't want us to lose sight of as we seek to faithfully engage our neighbors with the gospel. Something that we could miss, actually, as we study this text. The ministry of the gospel is first and foremost the ministry of Jesus Christ himself. It's not our ministry. The ministry of the gospel is the ministry of Jesus Christ, and Jesus moves his mission forward. I mean, that's got to be the best way to summarize Acts chapter 8, that Jesus moves his mission forward. doesn't matter what people throw at him. He can make it happen. As we continue through Acts, we cannot forget the trajectory-setting statement that Jesus made at the very beginning. Acts 1.8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's a promise, not a plea. A promise, not a plea. He's telling us there what's going to happen, not pleading for people to join him. You will do this. This is what's going to happen. A promise. And in this chapter, Luke invites us to marvel at how his promise is coming true. We're treated to the powerful work Jesus Christ accomplishes for sinners through his people's ordinary gospel ministry. Let me give you three things, okay? Three things that are going to serve as our outline for the remainder of our time in Acts chapter 8. Three big things Jesus is doing as his ordinary people share the gospel. First one, point number one, I'll give you the rest as we go. Point number one, as we share the gospel, Christ delivers people from Satan. Christ delivers people from Satan. As I mentioned, this passage is about all the believers who are scattered preaching the gospel, yet we're focused on one gifted evangelist here, Philip, who was a deacon actually in chapter 6, a proto-deacon from chapter 6. Philip is one of the scattered, and we find him first in Samaria, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and what did he do? No surprise, he proclaimed to them the Christ. Now this sentence seems unremarkable to us, right? Not for the original readers, this is a big moment, verse 5. It would have been in bold. Uh, it would have jumped off the page to the original audience. The gospel has made it to non-Jews. Samaritans thought of themselves as the true Jewish people, but first century Jews considered them Gentiles and looked down on them. However, in line with Christ's promise, the gospel is being announced to Samaritans. They are receiving an invitation 
into Christ's kingdom, and this would have been highly offensive to first century Jews, but no surprise to anybody who followed the ministry of Jesus or who read their Old Testaments. God had always planned to have a multinational, ethnically diverse people worshiping him. Now, not only does Philip announce the gospel there, they receive the gospel. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they saw him and the signs that he did. Verse 7, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. What a scene. It's like an exorcism movie where Philip is casting out shrieking demons left and right. Now, the detail of these exorcisms might seem a little strange, especially for us good modern 21st century people. Uh, Why the detail about the exorcisms? Well, there's one really big reason. Philip is, or excuse me, Luke is exposing us here to the the visible clash of two invisible kingdoms. It's the kingdom of Christ versus the kingdom of Satan. The Samaritans, what we're finding out here, have been held captive by Satan, but their liberator has come. The exorcisms are a physical sign of a deeper spiritual work, that Christ came to save his people from the kingdom of Satan and bring them into his kingdom of reconciliation and love and peace and joy and hope. As you read in the book of Colossians, Jesus Christ disarmed Satan by triumphing over him through his death and resurrection. And now, now Christ sends his people throughout the world announcing that anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ can join in that triumph and enter a new and better kingdom with a new and better ruler, a new and better people, a new and better hope. The Apostle Paul later described it this way, Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us, speaking to Christians, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what's happening in Samaria right now. And what's the result of that deliverance in Samaria? Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. For free people are happy people indeed. Now, it may seem strange to talk so confidently about the existence of a devil and the need to be rescued from him. It feels medieval. Modern, intelligent, sophisticated mankind has no place for Satan, right? We've outgrown that. Even for us, Sovereign Grace Church, what should we think about the devil and demons? I don't think we think about them very much. In his preface to the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis made the following perceptive comment about our relationship to Satan and his servants. Here's what he writes. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I don't think we disbelieve 
in the existence of devils, but I wonder if we often forget how influential they are, especially in the lives of unbelievers. I mean, listen to the Apostle Paul again, Ephesians 2. He describes our state like this, before Jesus liberated us from Satan's grasp, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Listen, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The world is following the lead of Satan. They're his captives, and he's leading, him down, he's leading them all down the same road that he himself is on, the road to hell. Now, I don't think we should respond to this by trying to cast demons out of every unbeliever we know. Don't recommend that. Not a good evangelism strategy. I don't even think you necessarily need to bring up Satan in your discussions about the gospel, but we need to remember the power that Satan holds over this world. First and foremost, to grow our compassion for those who are ensnared by him. For, for we were once there too, stock hopeless, until the Lord broke through and liberated us from his grasp. But we should also remember Satan so that we remember how deeply our neighbors need something we can't provide for them. They need Jesus, okay? Not us. Satan is a greater foe than you or I can handle, but Jesus could crush him in an instant. I think of the words from Martin Luther's uh, famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word can fell him. That word is the word of the gospel which Christ wields against him as we speak it so speak the cross of Christ to your neighbors and watch as Jesus delivers them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and love and peace. Christ came to deliver us from the kingdom of Satan. Point number two. Second thing he does as ordinary Christians preach the gospel. Point number two. Christ turns people from idols. He turns people from idols. As encouraging as conversions are, they bring with them some challenges. Uh, I'm, reminded, I'm reminded as I read Acts chapter 8 of a phrase I heard from a man in church once. He said, when the river rises, so does the debris. Simon the magician appears to be some of the debris that rose with the river. Look at verse 9 to get a profile of this guy. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Verse 10, they all paid attention to him. Notice the symmetry there. They paid attention to him, then they paid attention to Philip. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. I can't help but think, okay, I grew up like in the 90s and early 2000s, all the magician shows. Do you remember those? I can't help but imagine that Simon the Magician is like one of those weird guys on one of those magician shows. It's just etched into my brain. Now, his magic was some kind of witchcraft or trickery. Luke doesn't give us much detail what he means by magic, but it appears that Simon's mostly an entertainer and he'd captivated the city. He, we find out, pre-Philip, worshipped himself, and the people worshipped him. 
They saw him as some special guy with God's powers. But when Philip came on the scene, they saw him for what uh, a phony he actually was. Verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing great signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Oh, this was a big win for the church, right? They got Simon. Man, even Simon became a Christian. The guy whose favorite view in the world was the view he saw when he looked in a mirror finally became enamored with something else. But what is that exactly? Is he captivated by Jesus Christ? Captivated by the gospel? Doesn't appear so. In verses 14 and following, we read a note interjected here that the apostles send Peter and John down from Jerusalem to see how the gospel is progressing among the Samaritans. We find, in fact, you may have caught it, an odd statement tucked into verse 16 that that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. This is going to become important for us understanding Simon. Apparently, these Christians didn't have the Spirit. So Peter and John pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they do. Now, does this mean, this is a sidebar here, as some Christians believe that the Spirit doesn't necessarily inhabit believers at conversion, that you're converted and then at some later point you might be filled with the Spirit, that those are somehow two different things I could make a longer case to you after the service. I don't think this means that at all. We're witnessing redemptive history unfolding right here. Jesus promised, like I've been saying, for the gospel to spill out of Jerusalem is unfolding. Luke is narrating it. This is a one-time event. The apostles needing to come down to verify the word of God spreading among the Samaritans. A one-time event not to be repeated. That happens all the time in Acts. We don't need to make, build doctrines or practices off of the stuff we read in Acts normally. We know this from the rest of our Bibles. The Spirit inhabits believers as soon as he regenerates them. Nevertheless, the apostles come down to see what God is doing among the Samaritans. Peter and John have a run-in with Simon the magician. Verse 18, now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given in this way through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Aha. Doesn't need his magic anymore. There's a new magic. <laughs> he can wow people with a new and greater power. He's, he's fascinated, we find out now, by the signs that accompanied the gospel, but not by the gospel itself. No, oh, what an easy trap to fall into. Oh, people can become enamored with the church and the idea of a community and miss that this is a community built around the gospel. You need to become enamored with Jesus and his gospel. Then this community will make sense, but not apart from that. Simon, like all of us, is an idolater, and his idol isn't so easily smashed. He wants to make an idol out of the Spirit's power. That's what Peter figures out. So he rebukes him. Verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God, the gift of God, with money. This is something money can't buy, my friend. 
Verse 22, repent therefore, he calls on him. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, and it is possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter isn't hopeless in the case of Simon. He sharply rebukes it, no doubt about that, but he gives him a way out. You're enslaved to your idol, my friend, but turn from it. And Simon's humbled response in verse 24 really does look like genuine repentance. And actually, I think we tie that to earlier when Luke said that he believed, which is how he described the other believers as well. Simon genuinely repents. Look, this man loved the attention that people gave him, and when a new opportunity to keep their attention came into town, he wanted a piece of it, but Christ, through the preaching of Philip and through the sharp rebuke of the apostle Peter, turned this man from his idol. For there is only one true God who deserves our worship, and only one true God who would give the gift of his son, a gift we could, as we sang earlier, never pay for. Only one true God who could satisfy our souls. Only one God who can get our attention off of ourselves like Simon and on to the one who can thrill us for eternity. And that's precisely what he's come into the world to do. To save us from our idols. Which we're more than ready to crank out. Idolatry. Again, kind of like Satan. Satan feels like a bit of an outmoded term for us good modern people, but idolatry, according to biblical counselor David Pallison, is a problem of the heart, a metaphor for human lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. We see all those in Simon. If we looked into all of our hearts, we would see the same thing. Pallison goes on to write, the deep question of motivation is not what is motivating me. The final question is, who is the master of this pattern of thought, feeling, or behavior? In the biblical view, we are religious, whether we realize it or not, inevitably bound to one God or another. People do not have needs. We have masters, lords, gods. What masters you? What's the lord of your thoughts and behavior? What holds your deepest allegiance? What are you living for? Oh, these are the important questions that expose idols. If you're here and you're not a Christian, there is a better master offering himself to you, a master who loves you, a master who would lay down his life for you and forgive you for running after other lesser masters. The only one who genuinely cares about you and doesn't just want to subjugate you is Jesus Christ. You've heard the announcement this morning that he is offering himself to you, so turn from your idols and embrace him. Look, you can't satisfy you, okay? You can't satisfy yourself by looking inwards more and finding more of your true self somewhere deep inside you. You can't. Your family can't satisfy you, your job can't, your politics can't, romance can't, entertainment can't do it. Worship the true and living God through Jesus Christ, and your soul will drink from the everlasting fountain that will satisfy you for eternity. Turn from your idols and worship God through Jesus Christ.
Point number three. Last point. Christ shows people the truth through his people's preaching of the gospel. Christ shows people the truth. Final section of Acts 8, verses 26 through 40. A famous section about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, who is a rich African interested in the God of Israel, who is about to have his eyes dramatically open to the truth. Look at, look at how the Lord sets this whole thing up, okay? Luke, Luke takes pains to show us that God just crafts this whole encounter. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, right? Angel of the Lord. Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. I like that note. So you know it's a miserable place to go. This is a desert place. It's hot. It's dry. It's miserable. No explanation from the angel. Just an angelic visitation, you know, like normal, with very specific instructions. Head to the desert again. Don't think that this is normal to have an angelic visitation. The Lord tell you what to do if you're trying to make a job decision or something like that. This isn't normal. <laughs> Philip, without questioning, obeys. Verse 27. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch. And look, if you don't know what a eunuch is, ask your parents after the service. I don't want any questions about eunuchs after the service. <laughs> court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Okay, this is an important guy. This is an important guy. An attendant of the Ethiopian queen responsible for her money. You don't just put anybody over your money. He's returning home from Jerusalem, reading the Old Testament. He was God-fearing, interested in the God of Israel. Verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. Now, don't miss how intimidating this would have been for Philip. The eunuch likely had an entourage with him. He would have been riding in style. Philip was nobody. Some random dude in the desert. Yet, at the Lord's command, he walked right up to this official, simply because the Lord told him to. That's childlike faith and obedience. Verse 30. So Philip didn't just walk. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Okay, maybe now Philip knows why he's here. And asked, do you understand what you are reading? Verse 31. And the eunuch said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Ah, oh, I just... It strikes me how much the Lord loves Philip and wants to use him and just sets him up for this wonderful opportunity for ministry, but also how much the Lord loves this Ethiopian eunuch and gives him precisely what he needs at precisely the right time so that he can come to know the Savior. Verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter. This is Isaiah 53. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself 
In other words, is Isaiah the Messiah or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You know the rest. The eunuch expresses his faith in Jesus Christ and Philip baptizes him as a sign that he's now part of the kingdom of Christ, even though he is from way farther than Samaria. Then Philip mysteriously <laughs> transported by the Spirit to his next preaching assignment. That would be handy. A lot cheaper than an Uber these days. The Spirit of the Lord carried him away and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. The Bible is about Jesus. What else can you say as you read that passage? The Bible is about Jesus. When you read Isaiah 53, this prediction of the shameful slaughter of the Son of God for the sins of his people. All of the theology of the cross is packed into Isaiah 53 before anybody knew there was going to be a cross. That is, except God. And that's true of the scriptures all over the place. The Bible is about Jesus with a particular focus upon his saving work upon the cross. The bloody, gory death of the Son of God is in view from every page of your Bible. Jesus is the main character of the Bible, and the storyline is his saving work, him purchasing a people. And his spirit is now moving throughout the world, revealing that truth. The world is under the spell of the devil, right? The world is worshiping idols. The world is trapped in deception. Who can guide them? How can they know what the Scripture teaches unless somebody guides them? Christ is the author of life and the teacher of truth. And as we speak the truth of his gospel, he powerfully works to convince human hearts of its truthiness. My favorite fake word about truth. He convinces hearers of its truthiness. We speak the word, he convinces them of the truthiness, the truthfulness of the word. We should not in, uh, shy away from inviting unbelievers to study the Bible with us. Oh, I, we should not shy away from that. Even if you think you don't know that much about the Bible, you probably know more than you think you know, and oh, the Spirit is with you as you do. Guide people to Jesus Christ using the scriptures. Look, even in our day and age, everybody has an opinion about the Bible and what it teaches. Okay, everybody does. Oh, I have at times, I try not to do it in an offensive or condescending way, but ask somebody, when was the last time you read the Bible and could we read it together? And normally, even somebody with opinions about the Bible says, I actually haven't read it in a long time. Why don't we read it? And let me show you about the saving work of Jesus Christ. This has to be our greatest tool for evangelism. Show them Christ on the pages of Scripture. My friends, Jesus has promised to spread the gospel to every corner of this earth, okay? He's promised to do it, and he will. 
His kingdom is advancing against the kingdom of Satan. He is turning people from idols to the true God. He is rescuing people from lies and deception and and awakening their minds and hearts to the truth. And as we look out on this world, the incredible landscape that it is, and wonder what we should be doing to help it, the best way we can change the world is by sharing the gospel. For we have no greater power at our disposal to effect real change in human hearts than the gospel. So share it. It isn't our private treasure. We don't just come here to celebrate it on Sundays and enjoy it with one another. We enjoy it with one another so that we can be inspired again to go out and share it. It is not our private treasure. We are handing it out to anyone and everyone, anyone who will listen. And as we do, let us prepare with faith to see the Lord fulfill his promise, to spread the gospel to every corner of the planet, and to gather in his harvest here in Orange and beyond. Let me pray that we would. Lord, we thank you again for this book. A book which is not first and foremost about us. A book that is first and foremost about your son and how you from eternity past planned to send him to pay the price for our lives, which we lost by turning from you. But he has redeemed us and liberated us and showed us the truth and now entrusted us with this truth that we might share it with the world. So help us to be faithful sharers of your word. I do pray, Lord, not that we would walk out of this room and feel like we have to create opportunities for us to share the gospel, but I pray that we would seize the opportunities that you give us, that we would walk through the open doors to declare the gospel that you've given us. And I pray with the Apostle Paul that you would give us many open doors to preach the gospel, that many would come to treasure this wonderful news, forgiveness for every sin, eternal life, the hope of heaven, and life after death. May we see many people come to know our Savior through our faithful sharing of the gospel. By your power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.